Welcome to Chowder and Grits. Today is Friday, January 4th, and Tim, we've got some things to talk about today. Oh, there are things, and we certainly will talk about them, Justin. Yeah, uh, we go from Mark Richt abruptly retiring to recapping the New Year's Eve massacre, as I'll call it, for the ACC. And uh, then we'll hit on some news and notes around around the conference. If you're looking for a national championship preview, that is coming on Sunday, your Monday show, um, in anticipation for that. So uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. But for now, Tim, how was uh, how was New Year's Eve? <laughs> I feel like that's a loaded question, Justin. Um, yeah. Okay. How was New Year's Eve? Minus the football. Oh, it was great. Uh, you know, I smoked great. meats. Um, you know, I ate real good. It's, you know, it's the little girl's birthday, so we had a birthday party. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, it was yeah. fun. It was fun. It, it was a great New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. Awesome. Yeah, so I don't know if you caught any of the New Year's Eve television. <laughs> I'll put it I'll put it that way. The... Uh, the ball watching preview shows with Ryan Seacrest and we're still calling it Dick Clark's New Year's Eve and things like that. Uh, probably one of the worst produced segments of the year for kind of any genre. Yeah. I mean, that television is terrible. But then I got to flip over to the Chicago New Year's <laughs> oh, Eve show. Man. I mean, that was a Because obviously... Yeah, so we're watching it on delay, so we get to see New York ball drop at 11. So then we flip over to Chicago. They're live from Whiting, Indiana. Mm. And the big <laughs> thing that was going on there was a lit-up pierogi <laughs> was dropping from a crane. Wow. Wow, and that's how that's how we brought in the new year in the Midwest. You live in heaven on earth. I mean, if you live in a place where they're dropping pierogies from cranes to celebrate uh, the new year, that's what I'm all about. I mean, you have the Chinese that you know they have the dragon or you know whatever they're celebrating the new year with, and um, all the all the decorations and everything. And and you guys just you drop a pierogi. That's my kind of America right there. Yeah, it was it was fascinating. We had these lovely Polish women, uh, all probably in their mid nineties, uh, talking about um, Polish culture in Whiting, ah. Indiana. Yeah, well, and, that's uh, when I think Polish culture. I think uh, Indiana. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> kind of a weird New Year's Eve uh, as far as television goes, but yeah, otherwise good. Uh, we had some good football on New Year's Day, and we'll. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but uh, I think the big thing we wanted to start with, Tim, uh, right after we finished our podcast on Sunday, I'm at the grocery store, minding my business, and you shoot me a text, which basically read, oh my God, Mark Rick retired. (laughs) I did. That was my initial reaction. OMG. Um, I couldn't believe it, Yeah, so I think we had just said. I think we had just said, you know, is Mark Richt on the hot seat hours before? And it sounds like he probably was, because I have a feeling this was not just a Mark Richt decision, but that's my take. I mean, I get that take, and then, you know, I lean that way, and then I think about it for a little bit longer, and I I think everything along with this underperforming season with the high expectations, 
along with the struggles in recruiting, the recent decommitments, I think it might have just worn on him. I, he may have just gotten too beat up, and, and maybe he just got to a point where he was like, yeah, I'm not going to be the guy to turn this ship around. I'm not having fun, and, and maybe I need to get out of here. I don't know. Um, it could have been that, or like you said, it could have been a situation where the administrative, the administration kind of sat him down. I was like, look, Mark, this isn't going as we had thought it would, and um, you know, your leash is going to be mighty short. Either way, um, I was not expecting that. So here's what I think happened. I think you've got a school that got a little taste of what it was like to be back last year. Yeah. And they did nothing but underperform this year. Now, did they perform a little bit over their heads last year? Yes. Sure. But yeah, a- aided what by was a week great schedule. about the team? Yeah, aided by a week schedule. You know, that happens a lot in the ACC it these does. days, to be honest. But, you know, one thing that I think really – uh, accelerated this process was the best coach outside of Rick's because I think Rick is a very good coach yeah. I will not say he's a bad coach the best coach after Rick maybe even on the coaching staff Manny Diaz was leaving and going to Temple right and so I think this became about hey Mark uh, you need to change some things on the offensive side of the ball and it, that didn't really click for me until today when Diaz fired the entire coaching staff yeah, on the yeah. offensive side. So there was clearly something internal going on there. I mean, he went Tony Montana style on that coaching staff today and fired everybody. So it is a clean slate for that offense, which I think is good from a recruiting standpoint. Um, it gives kind of a different outlook. I mean, like who, who are they going to bring in? I don't know. I mean, you've got every single Miami alum on on Twitter right now. Like Greg Olson, I like Greg Olson. I think he's a good guy. Loved his rap video when he was at Miami, <laughs> and he's on there tweeting at Manny Diaz about you know why he should bring in uh, Ken Dorsey to be the offensive coordinator, and it's just like that's kind of what comes along with being the Miami coach. Right. I think Diaz was a popular hire. I think I don't know if he. If he was going up against Cristobal without a $10 million buyout, if he wins. But I think it was good, a good transition, about as easy as it could have been for Miami at the time. How it works, let's let's see. Let's see what they do on the offensive side. But I don't know. At the end of the day, I think it shows a program that is a tad dysfunctional at the moment. Yeah, and, and I think dysfunction. I mean, if I had to lean one way, I would say that is what uh, what caused Rick to step down. Um, you know, I think with Diaz, great hire for Miami. You know, he's a Miami kid. Um, and, and, you know, great, great performance on the defensive side of the ball, obviously. Um, and I saw that Shaq Quarterman uh, announced a couple of days ago that he was going to stay. Um, so that means that Shaq Quarterman, uh, Mike Pickney, and Zach McLeod are all going to have finished up their senior years together, which they're anchoring a, what should be a tremendous defense down there in year one for, for Diaz. Um, offensive side of the ball is going to be tough to figure out. I don't. I don't know what it is with Miami and their inability to figure out that quarterback position, but I'm not so sure that they're, you know, that's just going to be changed overnight. Um, depending on what they do with the offensive scheme, they could be a fairly successful team next year. And, uh, you know, I, I think Manny's a great fit for them. You know, I mean, like I said, there's something about staying home and being the head coach. Um, I think his dad may have even been the mayor of Miami at, at one point, but either way, he's got roots I think his down brother, 
I think it's his brother. His brother? Okay, yeah, I knew somebody in the yeah. family down there had been in, in politics in Miami. So um, good for him, bad for Temple. Uh, Temple is now uh, scrambling to, to find a replacement for Manny, and I think they made a knockout hire with Manny to begin with. So, um, you know, the dominoes fall as they may. Um, but, yeah, Miami finds itself in an interesting crossroads right now. Yeah, the uh, I don't feel so bad for Temple. They've basically been paid $10 million in coaching buyouts over the last year. So sure. I think from that standpoint, they're doing pretty well. Um, you yeah. know, and Diaz... Temple has a nose for head coaches, too. They seem to make great decisions. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, I mean, Diaz is a guy who... This is, this is going to be his first job as head coach. He's got an interesting background. Born in my... Or raised in Miami... Um, went to Florida State, but he's always said that Miami is his dream dream job, which kind of odd. I <laughs> feel like odd. your yeah. your your stance would change if you went to a certain school, but maybe not. Sure. Um, and what I like too is he's going up in the coastal against uh, Mac Brown, the guy who hired him at <laughs> right. Texas, right, and uh, fired him as well. So, yeah, you know we'll uh. We'll see how that pans out. I uh, I do like the hire, but uh, yeah, there's a lot of question marks. But one thing about Diaz, he has brought a tremendous amount of swag to this program. Oh yeah. Whether you like it or not, uh, I personally could do without the the uh, turnover chain, but it has uh, given the U that swaggy kind of demeanor again. And yeah. you know, I think they don't need a a home run quarterback. If you if you think about Miami quarterbacks over the last, I don't know, 15 years. Right. Ken Dorsey's probably been the best. Right. Brad Kaya was maybe more talented, went higher in the draft, but I never thought Brad Kaya was that good of a quarterback. Nor, nor did I. Um, and uh, outside of him, like you've had guys like Ja'Cory Harris Ja'Cory. and, you know, Malik Rozier and Nikosi like Perry and it's like this, it, it's got to end somewhere yeah yeah um you know and recruiting the quarterback position never been hard for him so you think they would have hit a couple home runs in between Ken Dorsey and now but it just hasn't materialized um but yeah let's let's see if they get it turned around and yeah we'll uh, we'll see where that ends up going um but they you know they got to start getting some fans turned out that's you know their their support has really even by Miami standards dwindled in recent years yeah, I mean, standard Miami crowd. It's a uh, pro sports town. Now, when the U is good, they show up. Oh, yeah. But when they're oh, yeah. not, even if they're okay, nobody's at the stadium. So, um, you know, we'll see. We'll see what goes on. We'll watch the uh, offensive side of the ball. And, uh, you know, I think their bowl performance had a lot to do with what went down. But yeah. speaking of poor bowl performances, Tim. Woo! The uh, the ACC was five and two coming into New Year's Eve, Cruising. and uh, they they left New Year's Eve five and five. Mm. Um, each game had its own kind of vibe to it. Let's start with the military bowl. Um, no oh, Lord, I I did not leave this game feeling anything but furious. Cincinnati thirty five, Virginia Tech thirty one. Uh, for those that didn't see it, the Cincinnati quarterback, Desmond Ritter, freshman, stud freshman. Stud, yeah. He leaves the game early, 
with the ankle injury. And you got to be thinking, well, now all they got to do is stop the run. Michael Warren's their workhorse back. If we control that guy, it should be cruising to uh, to the finish. And uh, they couldn't. They couldn't stop him. They knew he was getting the ball, but they uh, they were unable to stop Michael Warren, who also left the game for a brief period hurt. Um, it was just kind. Of, it was a weird game. Like for Virginia Tech moved the ball better offensively than I thought. You know, since he had a top thirty defense in the country, uh, Virginia Tech had two hundred and twenty four yards on the ground. Deshaun McLeese had a nice day rushing the ball, but. Just uh, just some costly turnovers, uh, more specifically some poor play calling. And uh, I'll even go to the Justin Fuente book of excuses and just say, you know, there was poor execution in, uh, in key moments in the game. And to be honest, Virginia Tech should be embarrassed. Uh, they should have won that football game. They had it locked up. Uh, first losing season since 1992. Definitely the worst football team I've uh, had the pleasure of watching in Blacksburg since 1992. Uh, I don't know where you where you stand on this, but I'm sure it's close to where I am. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to try and not be too ranty uh, about this loss for Virginia Tech. I just think it can't be understated how poorly coached the football team in Virginia Tech is. And I, Fuente skates a lot of criticism because of how well he performed in his first year at Virginia Tech. But it's time to start looking at what's wrong with that program from a play-calling standpoint, from a preparedness standpoint, when you have a, a stud freshman quarterback go down, and let's throw a freshman out the window. He's a good quarterback, Ritter. You have him go down. Their offense becomes completely one-dimensional. Completely. The, the backup more hardly did anything. Um, you know, I, I think he even threw a pick to us, too. Um, you, you know they're going to go to Warren. You know they're going to go to Warren. You can't stop it. You can't stop it. It's been the pass offense that's really let us down all year. Defending the pass, really, that's that's been the problem. We can't stop the running back. Scratch all that frustration. Super frustrated about that. But then you go to the offensive side of the ball. We, sco- we, we didn't have a problem scoring. But there's something about the way our offensive play calls are done in a manner that's so inconsistent and feast or famine it's like we try to make it as hard as possible for our own quarterbacks and our own offense to, to succeed and build momentum because we're either going three and out or we're throwing a long pass for a touchdown. You know, we're having explosive plays. We never have those 10 to 15 play drives that eat up clock, give your defense a rest, um, and get the running backs going because as soon as the running game starts working, we completely abandon it. Or we throw in another running back for a change of pace that does nothing for us. Um, Again, not going to try to get you know too ranty on that point. And when you mentioned Justin Fuente's book of excuses, that thing is a is a scroll longer than a CVS receipt at this point. And you'd like to see some some self awareness and some something critical come out of his mouth about the coaching staff at any point in time to make you realize yes, he realizes there's a shortcoming here. He realizes there's a deficiency. And the scary part is I don't think he does, and, and that's what worries me the most. So I was reading uh, Andy Bitter's post-game recap on The Athletic, and, you know, he's got sound from Bud Foster. He's got sound from Justin Fuente. And Fuente said that if they have another 365 days like they had uh, in the past 365 days, things were going to be bad. 
Well, I would hope so. I would hope you would feel that way because that was probably the worst offseason I've ever seen from a Virginia Tech standpoint. Oh, barn. Uh, you've got coaches running rampant on the recruiting trail um, with having affairs, and you've got guys getting kicked off the football team. Now, I know that he didn't bring in some of those guys, but he's been the coach there for two years coming into this mm-hmm. season. So he's been there for three years now. He's It felt like he lost control yeah. at, at points. So I don't know why that happened or what was going on, but it seems like there was a big culture slash locker room issue this year, um, yeah. specifically with the Trayvon Hill situation um, where he got kicked off the team after Old Dominion. So, you know, Hokie's got some things to uh, to clean up. Uh, one, one stat that, uh, that Bitter pointed out, Hokies gave up 42 plays this year of at least 30 yards. That is last in the Power Five and fourth most nationally. Oh. So yeah. that just kind of shows you how bad the defense was. Yeah. Um, uh, the defense That doesn't was even bad? show you huh. Def- defense was bad. Yeah, defense was bad. Offense was not good this year. Um, and that's something that when we, you know, when we landed Fuente, we were kind of thinking, okay, teamed up with Bud Foster, we should never have to worry about the offense anymore. Justin Fuente, the quarterback whisperer, um, really hasn't done a whole lot for our offense, and the offense has been sputtering all year, but falling into the same traps from the beginning of the season until the end of the season, and that's what worries me is we haven't seen changes. There's talent on that offense. You got guys like Kuma and Trey Turner on the outside, and and you're not able to make plays, get the ball to those guys. I mean, Trey Turner should have gotten at least eight targets that game. He had one reception against Cincinnati. McLeese ran rampant on Cincinnati. He couldn't be stopped. He averaged seven point eight yards a carry. He got thirteen touches. That that's that's nowhere near good enough. And I, and I'm sorry, that's an easy fix. And this is something that's been happening all year, all year with this team. And and this was just the epitome of my frustration this game, and and that's where I'll, you know, I'll I'll stop the rant there because I could go on all thirty minutes about this one. Yeah. So one last thing, we'll move on. Did you see the cryptic tweet from Trey Turner? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yesterday, right? Yeah. What did it say? It said, "Thanks for everything." Yeah. Virginia Tech, and said, then it had like yeah. the prayer hands. Prayer hands. I, and what does that mean? Are you transferring? Are you really just being grateful? Um, and reflecting on the season that was, you know, I, I couldn't tell, but you know, it's it's hard to read into twenty-some-year-old kids. Yeah, we've already seen an exodus of guys transferring this year, even throughout the season. So oh. I wouldn't be surprised to see a few more. We've been hurt um, before yeah. before things go down. So, uh, so let's move on to the Sun Bowl and weird football game. <laughs> like if you're if you're watching this game, it felt like Pit One. Yeah, I mean, yeah. they pretty much outplayed Stanford across the board. Stanford only had 208 yards of total offense. They converted one-third down the entire game. They didn't even have five of their starters for this game, and they still won. They had a fluke fumble into the end zone from Costello where the running back caught it, and that was pretty much the difference. Uh, Pitt got one touchdown. They lost Quadriolis in early in the game. Yep. Darren Hall had a good game, uh, but really couldn't get anyone else going um, on the offensive side, and that kind of starts with the quarterback play. But uh, got to be a pretty disappointing loss for Pitt because 
it seemed like they were probably the better team on that day but yeah Stanford came out on top yeah they were they you know they almost doubled Stanford in yards and you know watching this game was a struggle at certain points there were six total third down conversions in that entire game six yeah whoo that's a barn burner yeah man. it was ugly yeah it was ugly um that's really all I kind of had for that one uh Pitt let it slip away they finished the year seven and seven <laughs> seven and seven and made the ACC championship game wow yeah Wow. That that was that was as good as the coastal was this year. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, the next game, Tim, <laughs> uh, really kind of shocked me. You got NC State, Texas A and M, and I'll I'll let you get that one started. Yeah. So I mean, the game in the first half was tight. Uh, really, NC State had a lot of momentum. Um, you know, going in, they had a huge drop from C.J. Riley, the wide receiver. Um, who was filling in for Kelvin Harmon, who's going to you know, be Kelvin Harmon's replacement next year. Um, 6'5", runs about a 4'4 in the 40. All the physical tools in the world. He's had some crucial drops this year. Um, NC State driving to go up two scores when he dropped the third down conversion. Um, and really just the momentum got taken away you know, after halftime. Um, it's a tight game at halftime, one score game. Uh, NC State getting the ball back, so you're positive going into halftime. And then you look at what happens after halftime, and it's just a tale of two halves. The NC State defense could not do anything uh, with the Texas A&M rushing game in the second half. I mean, it was one of the most lopsided defeats I've seen from a, just a sheer physical getting-your-butt-kicked kind of perspective um, that, I, you know, that I can recall, certainly, in such a big game. And that was a shame to see. You know, there were a lot of surprises. Now, granted, you had NC State without its best defensive player and its best offensive player, um, so to speak. And there was nothing that could be done regardless. And you didn't expect to see that big of a drop-off, um, but you got it. And it really, to me, my biggest takeaway from the game, and, and I don't know what yours was, but those two teams just look like they're full of completely different breed of athlete. Um, Texas A&M fa- players were faster. They were stronger. Um, and it showed as the game went on and NC State got weaker, Texas A&M seemed to just impose their will even more than they were uh, in the first half. Yeah, you know, it was uh, it was really more so the rushing game and the defense from A&M that really stood out to me because, you know, outside of Kellen Mond's uh, 62-yard run, uh, he didn't really do much for me. He never does much for me. I'm not a Kellen Mond guy. I think he is a baller. He is a gamer. But he's he's never going to blow me away with his passing ability. Uh, Travion Williams was the, was oh, the guy in this game. I mean, so good. 236 yards rushing, three touchdowns. He just announced he's going pro today. So he, uh, he had quite the uh, swan song in the Gator Bowl against NC State. But... What really stood out to me was how how badly the NC State offensive line got dominated. Oh, yeah. Because Ryan Finley got beat up in this game. Yeah, and that was a good offensive good. line. I mean, it was a good offensive line all throughout the year. You have NFL draft picks on that line uh, at Garden Center, Tyrone Prescott and Garrett Bradbury, and they got blown off the ball. Um, Finley couldn't do anything, and he had, uh, I think he got less than 150 yards passing. 
uh, which for Finley is absurd, and that being the bread and butter of the offense. Now, NC State was able to find some success on the ground with Reggie Gillespie um, more than I thought they would. Uh, but the counter of that is Ryan Finley had one touchdown pass and two interceptions in less than 150 yards. And that was the last thing I was expecting to see, even in defeat from NC State. So really just strange. You know, you're watching the second half of that that game, you're like, who is this NC State team? And, and what happened to the one I had been watching, you know, throughout the year? Um, and, yeah, as you said, Williams was just dynamite. You know, he had one of those 90-plus yard runs and, um, you know, stuffed the stat sheet with three touchdowns and just couldn't be stopped. Texas A&M just looked so fast and so strong. Um, yeah. Yeah. They uh, NC State, before the game got out of hand there in the second half, it looked like they were getting Gillespie going. Uh, he was starting to run the ball well, and then Finley threw a pick six, and That's right. it was uh, it was over after that. I mean, A and M just could not be stopped after that point. NC State got blown off the field from that point on. So disappointing to see. I don't know if all the uh, coaching changes that occurred with NC State had anything to do with this, yeah. but it makes it hard. You know, it, I, it makes it hard. But you yeah. know, you go in with co-offensive coordinators for the first time. Um, yeah, potentially ever. I'd have to go back and look. I don't think NC State's ever done that. Um, you know, they're breaking them in. First opponents, Texas A&M, and you have zero third down conversions for the entire game. Uh, that's that's an alarming stat if you're an NC State fan. Um, thankfully, they have all off season to work on it and get it straight uh, and work on the four-way quarterback battle that NC State is going to have. Uh and, you know, we'll see what next year brings. But, uh, you know, a sour note to what should have been and, and what really was, if you look back on it, a great year for Dave Dorn and NC State. So uh, we'll talk about two more games since we added this to our little bet, which you won. The shirts are already ordered, by the way. So I am just waiting Ooh. for those to be complete. Awesome. Uh, so we'll have some chowder and grits apparel to be uh, to be sporting around. But... Uh, yeah, UCF uh, is not going to be a back-to-back national champion. Thankfully, pretend national champion. Yeah, so uh, this game appeared closer than it was in the box score, but uh, LSU pretty much dominated UCF oh, yeah. defensively. Um, there was a pick-six return and a couple of other fluky plays that that kept allowing UCF to hang around, but... I think if you sat there and watched this game, uh, after that hit on Joe Burrow, the the block um, on the pick oh six that he threw, yeah, it felt it felt like that like awoke a sleeping giant in LSU. I mean, you had Coach O losing his flipping mind on the sideline, screaming, "That's targeting at the scoreboard." He was hot. Uh, they didn't get the targeting penalty, but then after that, it seemed like everybody came together for LSU. They had a guy get ejected for targeting. Yeah, they it. were down five defensive backs in this game after injuries and ejections mm-hmm. occurred because their top two guys, uh, one declared for the draft and one had ankle surgery. So they were about as slim as you could be, but that defensive front of LSU didn't allow the back end of the defense to even be tested Dominant. because UCF had no time on offense. Dominant. Yeah, it was a, what a great performance from that defense. Um, you know, they were they were throwing the water boy out there on dime packages. It was insane. Um, 
you know, you go back and look at it and, and you're amazed that they were able to be as effective as they were uh, given the limitations that they had. I think they were playing at least one wide receiver at defensive back for that game just to have enough warm bodies out there to compete. Um, yeah, Coach O, great game. UCF played really, you know, they, they played strongly. They didn't quite play as close as the final score indicated. Um, statistically, it was it was a, a match that was dominated by LSU. Um but man, you can't really say enough about Joe Burrow. That guy might be the toughest quarterback in college football this year. I feel like every time I'm watching LSU play, he is getting destroyed and getting right back up and competing. And um, that hit he took on the interception was that was crazy. That was that was a tough hit, a clean hit. I, I get why Coach O was upset, but if you don't want your quarterback getting hit, don't have him pursuing the ball carrier um, on an interception that close. I mean, you're asking for it in that situation. I don't know how you thought about yeah. that, but it, it was perfectly clean to me. Uh, yeah, it was. Um, I thought watching it live, it, they might throw a flag, but at the end of the day, he's a he's a guy trying to make a play on the guy with the football. Yeah. So it wasn't a block in the back live. I thought it might have been. Watching it in slow mo, it really wasn't. It was just a big hit. Right. And uh, whenever there's a big hit in football now, people freak out and want to flag. That's just not the way that it, it's football. You know, right. it's uh, it's meant to be violent at times. Right. And, and, and that's why I hit. mentioned it. And, and that's kind of one of my pet peeves is what I'm all about player safety. But there are certain parts of the game that are, are kind of unavoidable. And that's one of those situations where as a defensive player, I, I don't know what you expect the guy to do in that position. Um, you know, you have, you know, a roughly, let's call him a 210, 200 pound Joe Burrow, uh, versus a, an almost 300 pound defensive lineman. Um, that's going to look nasty no matter which way it shakes out. But even from coach O to be, I don't want to say a tantrum. I don't want to make it sound pedantic, but I mean, the way he lost his mind, you, know, you just want to sit back and say, okay, come on, coach. If that was your LSU player making a block on the opposing quarterback, you would be so, so excited. And so happy to see that play. You know, just got to stuff with the dramatics a little bit because it it does bait the officials into making questionable calls. Yeah, it that to me is just Coach O though. Yeah, that's his personality, right? Yeah, and he's a guy who you you know exactly what he's feeling. (laughs) Sure, at all. And sometimes that's nice. I like I do like that sometimes. But uh, yeah, I mean, super impressed with Joe Burrow. I mean, he's he's probably the best quarterback LSU's had, and. And Zach Mettenberger. It's, so it's, it's been a weird while, to see an LSU quarterback not being terrible. I will give yeah. you that. Um, so then that led us to the Sugar Bowl later in the day. And uh, wow, this one got started with fireworks. And Bevo really set the tone <laughs> early. Uh, he saw Uga and he went after him hard. And Texas never really let up after that. Yeah. Yeah, dude, look, it's it's a cross-species rivalry, man. I mean, you, you trot out the Texas Longhorn and the Bulldog, there's going to be fireworks. Um, you know, that Uga's not scared of anybody. You, know, you, you could have a ton on him. He doesn't care. He's going to square up regardless. And, I, you know, I like to see that kind of fight in a dog. You know, that size, dogs aren't scared of anything. That was great. You know, Bevo, though, Bevo, was a, that's, a, that's a big animal to control, so props to those guys. Usually, Bevo is so sedated. It looks like he's about to like pass out, right? But I watched the video probably a thousand times because I was just fascinated by it. <laughs> and 
the more I watch it, the longer it feels like Uga just looked Bevo in the eye and said, yeah, come and get me. And then he just takes off the last <laughs> second. So that, he's, that to me smart. was one of the mo- most exciting parts of the game. And, uh, I mean, this was just a straight-up dominant performance by Texas. And from a Georgia team where you had a bunch of guys with Twitter fingers uh, during the college football oh, yeah. playoff mouthing oh, yeah. off about Notre Dame, I mean, they uh, they kind of got embarrassed a little bit, in my opinion. I mean, they got straight-up dominated by Texas. They had a little bit of a late run there in the fourth quarter, but Sam Ellinger really kind of had his uh, coming-out party to me in this one. Yeah, Sam looked good. Um, my biggest takeaway was, wow, on the rushing defense from Texas. I mean, holding Georgia to 2.4 yards a carry, 72 total yards on the ground, that was so impressive to me. Um, you know, coming out with a win against Georgia, I thought I did not see that coming flat out. I thought Georgia would dominate this game, as we uh, alluded to on prior prior podcasts. But that was incredible for me to see a defense step up in the way that Texas's defense did, um, really limiting Georgia and holding them to less than 300 total yards of offense. Incredible from them. Um, you know, Ellinger looked good, did just enough to get the win, um, but really seemed extremely comfortable to me when I was watching him just seemed totally in control um you know Watson had a great game on the ground and it it was I wanted Georgia to win uh, going into this game but the closer we got to the game and as you said the active Twitter fingers that were firing off part of me really kind of enjoyed Texas coming out on top here yeah I mean my biggest thing like we talked about this in our last podcast it comes down to preparation and execution. Right. Nick Saban would never – I'm not going to say he would never lose this game. You would never see a team come out the way it came out if it if it was coached by Nick Saban. Not, not a chance. And, I mean, DeAndre Swift, I don't know what was going on with him. He had eight carries for 12 yards, two fumbles. Yep. And, I mean, he basically got benched. Yep. And – Something else that was going on, I don't know if you caught this, they kept focusing on Justin Fields and the body <laughs> language that he had on the sideline whenever Fromm would throw in a complete pass or miss a receiver. And Fromm did struggle he did. in this one. But it was just like Fields was like, are you kidding me? Why am I not in the game? Like There there seems to be there, – there was something going on with Georgia. Like I don't know if the coaches just didn't get them prepared enough or – if there's locker room tension between Fromm and Fields, but after seeing the way Fields just looked on the sideline, I have a feeling he's probably going to transfer. Yeah. And, you know, a couple of things I don't think you would have seen, too, and, and not that I've done in-depth social account analysis, I don't think you would have seen the kind of tweeting and, and social stuff that you saw from Georgia players, from Alabama players. Um, and I think that just, to me, I don't like to see that kind of stuff, and I, I think you lose focus on the game. Um, and really you give the opponent fuel for what reason. Um, you know, it's a lot of differences between that Georgia team and that Alabama team right now. Um, and like you said, all down to preparation. Georgia didn't even get off the bus, it looked like, and, until after the second half. They started to turn it around a little bit. But, yeah, that was – man, I, I don't know what happened to that Georgia team, but that is not the Georgia team we saw all year. That was crazy. Yeah, so I don't know if Texas is back after that one necessarily. I mean, to me, if you lose to Maryland in the season, you're not back. <laughs> you uh, you need to do a little bit more for me. But 
Uh, I do think things are looking up there. They uh, they should be one of the favorites next year in the in the Big Twelve. So yeah, and we'll uh, and that'll we'll be a good one in Oklahoma and Texas. You know, duke it out again next year, and um, it'll be interesting to see what Oklahoma does with its quarterback situation moving forward. But Texas should feel really good about that ten and four season. Um, it doesn't exactly jump off on paper from a record standpoint, but uh, you know they're going to finish obviously well into the top fifteen, maybe top ten. Um, and you know that that's a heck of a win for a program that you know two years ago was looking pretty lost. Yeah, so there is only one more football game this year. That is the national championship game. Uh, third time in four years, it's going to be Clemson against Alabama. Uh, like I said earlier, we are going to pre- um, preview that game on Sunday. But uh, one thing we will talk about is it appears. Tickets right now are going for 90% less than face value. And uh, if you're not familiar with where the game is being played, it's in Santa Clara, California at Levi Stadium, where San Francisco 49ers call home. Uh, That's not exactly close to either alumni base, Tim. I don't know how familiar you are with geography, but that might be a little bit of a reason that maybe ticket prices are, are dropping yeah. pretty quickly. Yeah, I'm, uh, you know, I don't know why the committee chose to put any college football game um, in Santa Clara, California, just because that is not a college football hotbed, that area. Um, very much pro sports leaning. Um, and, you know, certainly when you look at the favorites going in, it, Alabama, Clemson, really always runaway favorites. I mean, could you imagine the ticket prices if they were having this in Atlanta? I mean, could you imagine? It, the demand for tickets to this game would be through the roof. And, you know, I, yeah, they, I, I had to read. They'd be going for 900% over face, right. not 90% less. Right. And I read, you know, hot takes flying around from at least 10 or 15, you know, verified people on Twitter talking about this uh, sometime, be, some way being representative of the demand of college football waning uh, nationwide. And I just thought that was the stupidest hot take you could have. I mean, it, it takes two seconds to look at this logically and, and understand why, especially when you see the plane ticket prices to get out there. I mean, who's going to do that? Well, that's that's the other thing, Tim. You know, you, you look at games like the Rose Bowl, okay? If my team gets into the Rose Bowl, guess what? I know it's going to be played on January 1st, and I have a month to book my travel. Right. Now, are plane tickets probably going to go up a little bit? Yeah, they will by the time that I figure out where my school is going to be. But I don't necessarily know if my team's going to be in the national championship these days. So now I have to book a flight from, let's say, I think we're. it's fair to say Atlanta's probably a big alumni hub for both of these schools. Yeah, huge. Let's say I'm booking a flight from Atlanta to San Francisco. I mean, it, a minimum of $750. Yeah, minimum. That. And then that's if you're getting a great deal. Right. I mean, you're a week out. Yep. And so I don't know if you've done any travel on the West Coast, but hotel prices are already inflated out there, especially in California. So the fact that they've got a national championship game, the stadium at Levi Stadium is kind of out in the middle of nowhere. It's right. not near San Francisco. It's closer to San Jose, but it's kind of on its own little island. So, I mean, it's, again, have the Super Bowl there, which I think they are. Yeah, I believe Where's so. Where's the Super Bowl this year? I think it's but, Levi Stadium. 
but college football, no. I mean, to me, the only stadium I could be okay with that's super glitzy and glamoury hosting a college football national championship game is Dallas. Oh, Just because it's kind of like right in the heart of the country and, you know, everybody wants to go to Dallas. Football area, man. I mean, from high school to college to pros. And that's what they need to be smart about because they have to realize that they're dealing with teams coming on a weak turnaround from a last playoff game. And logistically, unless you're having this in you know like a central spot between the two universities um, that are going to be in, you're going to run into this issue. But picking Santa Clara beforehand is probably the worst place outside of Hawaii or Alaska on the uh, in the United States you could have had this ball game um, from a logistics standpoint. So so no, this is nothing more than the game being in Santa Clara. This is not representative of you know the country not wanting to spend money on college football or interest in college football waning it's not um it's not anything like that i mean it that seems to be the low-hanging fruit for the uh hot takes from the professionals right now on this but it's just really to me a non-story yeah and some people have said championship fatigue are we tired of seeing these two teams play no yes and I mean, no I, yes I mean, yes and no i'd love sure yeah i mean i'd love to see different teams in the national championship but at the same time, these are the two best teams in college football today. Right. right. So that's who I want to see play football. Right. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yes, in the sense that, sure, I want variety just like any anything else, just like I don't want to see the Warriors in another NBA Finals. But am I tired of seeing championship football? Am I tired of the national title game? No. It's ludicrous. I'm going to watch it every time. I mean, it could be Clemson, Alabama for the next 10 years, and I'm still going to be watching. So, you know— I'm a, I'm a big proponent of watching football on TV. It's tough to get to games. Uh, there's no way I'd be going to Santa Clara unless uh, my school was in the game. Right. Then I'd be forced to go. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think we have to worry about Virginia Tech being <laughs> in uh, three national championships in four years anytime oh, soon. Oh, so. yeah. Womp womp. All right, so let's move on to the mailbag, Tim. We've got our first – mailbag question courtesy of Aaron Powers one of my buddies up in yeah. Pennsylvania so hey, Aaron. Aaron is a uh, Virginia Tech fan and his question was who do we think is going to be un- under center for Virginia Tech next year and why and so just to fill you in in case you're a little unfamiliar with the quarterback situation in Blacksburg uh, Josh Jackson Started the season as quarterback. Uh, sophomore year, he was a starter his freshman year. And then he broke his ankle early in the season. And Ryan Willis took over. And obviously didn't have a ton of success this year. I don't think that was because of quarterback play. But uh, what do you think, Tim? That's a good question. Uh, if you asked me about six games ago, I would have said QP all day. Um, however... As we're working towards the end of the season here and we're looking back on the season that was, Ryan Willis really showed me a lot from that quarterback position that we weren't getting with Josh Jackson. And I'm going to go ahead and put Josh on the side here. He may be the favorite you know, if you wanted the easy pick, but I don't. I think Josh is limited in what can, he can do from the quarterback position. I think he's the safest pick, but I don't think he's the right pick, and I, I don't think he's the one that we will end up going with. Um, when you look at what Ryan was able to do from his mentality to his ability throwing the ball. I think he adds a gunslinger mentality to that position 
Um, he, he will make the risky throws, um, and he's got a great arm. And when, when play breaks down, he keeps his head and he looks downfield and he's able to make throws that I don't think Josh is able to make, or at least I haven't seen at this point. Um, you know, and then you have QP, who's the wild card, you know, elite 11 quarterback coming out of high school, um, a guy that really multidimensional dual threat kind of guy with a live arm who, for all intents and purposes, has been very good this year, at least in the practice squad. Um, you could certainly see an avenue where he wins a quarterback competition. But I think the chances of that are much slimmer. And we know what we have with Josh and Ryan. Um, and Ryan impressed me. So after looking at the season, I would say that Ryan Willis is probably going to be our starting quarterback come next September. What do you think? Yeah, so I uh, best case scenario, I would have said Quincy Patterson. Yeah. But the way that we utilized him this year in the three games that he played where clearly – they did not want him to throw the football at all tells me he's not ready and uh we'll see what happens in the spring again we're going to go into spring nothing's going to be announced we're going to go into summer it's going to be a three-way quarterback competition and then i have a feeling we're going to start the year in a two quarterback system i think ryan willis is going to start and i think he's eventually going to win the job and then Josh Jackson will transfer before he uh, loses eligibility for this season, which I guess doesn't really matter to him because he's already redshirted. So sure. I do think Jackson is probably going to redshirt if he ends up losing the job. But to me, if we can rein Willis in a little bit, the coaching staff that is, and make him a little bit more accurate. The The thing that really drives the coaching staff crazy, I'm assuming, because it drives me crazy, is he holds on to the football <laughs> for far too long. Yes, he does. And he struggles to step up into the pocket. He loves to backpedal. Yeah. So if he can shed that, get that out of his game, throw the ball away a time or two, I think we'll see some drives extended. I think he's a little bit more accurate than Jackson. I yeah. think he's a little bit more of a gunslinger than Jackson, mm-hmm. and he's just as, if not a better runner than Jackson. Oh, absolutely. So, absolutely. Um, but, yeah, I think the coaching staff probably goes uh, Willis. If Jackson doesn't transfer before the season, uh, he'll be the number two, but I think they probably want a situation where QP's the number two and then he takes over uh, after next season. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think that's um... – you know, that, that'll be interesting to see what happens there. Um, you know, we've got a huge quarterback battle at NC State going with multiple four, uh, four-star recruits, uh, Florida State transfer and Bailey Hockman. Um, it'll be interesting to see how Duke shapes up with their new quarterback they're going to be breaking in now that Daniel Jones is going to the NFL. Um, you know, the new quarterbacks in the ACC are going to be exciting to watch next year. So that's, you know, that's a good mailbag question, something to keep an eye on with that position. Yeah, so uh, thanks, Aaron, for the question. And if uh, any of our other listeners out there have any questions they want answered, you can tweet at us or go on chowderandgrits.com and uh, post away. That also reminds me, we've got the forums up and running. So uh, if you are a person that loves to post messages on a forum or talk football with uh, random sports fans, go ahead, check that out, create a profile, and get posting. And I will, uh, I'll create a session section on there as well for mailbag questions, just so it's a little bit easier to find as well. Yeah, that, yeah, that's that's a good thing, and 
Um, you know, the forums are, are, are active. They are no longer dormant. You can reach uh, Justin and I there, uh, you know, posting. And, you know, eventually when this thing gets going, you know, we'll have hopefully a thriving community where we can uh, shout you down over the Internet via text. So, Tim, you mentioned Daniel Jones is opting for the NFL, which uh, I think you and I probably agree that's the best call for him. Sure thing. He is a projected first-rounder, particularly weak quarterback class. If uh, Dwayne Lawson commits, he will probably be the top quarterback taken. But then Daniel Jones has the the, uh, ability to be taken pretty high in this this draft class just – because he, he's got quarterback. He's got uh, NFL size. He's six foot five, two twenty. He had success at Duke. He started there as a walk on. Um, been a little bit inaccurate at times, but I think uh, I think him at the next level. I think he'll uh, he'll pan out pretty well. Yeah, and he's got all the makings of the guy. You know, there's always that one quarterback that's the late riser in the draft, and he goes from being maybe a fringe first round pick to like, okay, now they're talking about maybe taking him in the first, you know, the top ten. I, I see that guy being Daniel Jones this year. I, I think he's going to impress from a mental standpoint. Um, and I think in, the, in you know, the combine, a lot of the drills that they'll be doing, I think he'll impress there too. He's got a real big arm. Um, and he was making some great, some tough throws in that bowl game that uh, uh, quite honestly I didn't know he had in his arsenal. So, um, yeah, looking forward to seeing how he does. And, you know, I'm, I'm a Daniel Jones fan. Yeah, so we had a few other players decide to leave early. Uh, across the ACC, so Joe Giles Harris also on Duke, mm-hmm. linebacker is uh, is heading out. He was all ACC the last two years. On uh, NC State, Kobe Myers he set a single season record there with 92 catches, yeah. uh, just over a thousand yards. So leaves a hole in their secondary, um, especially with some other guys leaving early. So. They now have their top two receivers and five offensive seniors to replace on that offense, along with two coaches. So (laughs) definitely something to watch next year for NC State. It's setting up to be a fun year. Uh, Somebody else who is going pro, which I don't think we mentioned this before, but Wake Forest wide receiver Greg Dortch. Greg. He is only the fourth Wake Forest player to ever leave early. So... He, uh, he was a first-team All-ACC selection as a return specialist and all-purpose back and was also voted as a first-team All-American in certain circles. And if he wasn't on the first team, he was in second in others. So he's a uh, dynamic dynamic type. He's definitely going to find a home somewhere in the NFL. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. At least on somebody's special team squad. So he'll be fun to watch. Yeah, and he'll find I think he'll find a niche as a slot receiver, you know, with some more coaching in the NFL. I think he's got a, a bright future. You know, that guy getting the ball in space in his hands is just, it's dangerous. Um, so yeah, good for him. Also, nice nice pull on the uh, Wake Forest early entry stat you just mentioned. That's that's digging deep. Yeah, I'm a, uh, I'm a digger. So <laughs> there you go. Uh, some some other coaching news in the ACC. Uh, T. Martin to Louisville. So we're not sure if he's going to be the offensive coordinator there or not. He was formerly the OC at uh, USC before being let go. But uh, he'll have some type of role at Louisville. Yep. Uh, Tashar Choice was named running back coach at Georgia Tech. Hey, so, there's a name from the past. Former Yellow Jackets running back and uh, six-year NFL pro. He actually 
started as an intern on the Dallas Cowboys coaching staff in 2016 and then spent uh, the last two years with North Texas. And uh, Jeff Collins was there when Choice was on the team, so a little bit of a connection there. But he will be coaching the running backs at Georgia Tech, so that'll be uh, that should work out good. And uh, one one that I really wanted to point out, Kendall Bryles is now offensive coordinator at FSU. Yeah. And so I bring this up for two reasons. Um, one, shouldn't Willie Tagger be calling the plays? Isn't, uh, <laughs> wasn't thing. he the dynamic offensive guy that they hired? Yeah. Yeah, he was. That was supposed, you know, that's his so, MO. Willie's, Willie's always the play caller. So um, that dynamic in and of itself will be fun to see how that plays off. Will he be able to keep his hands out of that offense enough to uh, suit a guy like Bryles who comes in with his own uh, pedigree. We'll see. Yeah, his own his own pedigree. He had the fourth-ranked offense in the nation at Houston this year. Yes. So I wonder what's going on internally there because this doesn't seem like a move that Taggart would have gone out and done on his own. No. I feel like he was probably told to do this because, yeah, go out and get an offensive coordinator – you're not going to go out and get the guy who has the fourth best offense in the country and then tell him that he's not calling plays. Right. That's just right. not going to float. No. So no. I think that's something to watch next year in uh, old Tallahassee. Yeah, Tallahassee is going to be fun. You know, it, the first season of Willie Taggart as Florida State's head coach was not what I don't think anyone was expecting. Um but, again, heck of a recruiter that Willie Taggart is uh, with the right pieces. Obviously, it is Florida State. We'll be interested to see how that plays out. And, um, yeah, look, Browse is a great offensive mind and uh, you know, great hire by them. I also think T. Martin is a great hire for Louisville, a heck of a recruiter and another really good offensive mind. So uh, that will really help Satterfield out. Uh, anything else ACC for you? Not ACC. Um, you know, I have one shout out for the end of the podcast, but as far as the best conference in the world goes, no, I have nothing else. There you go. What's your shout out? My shout out is to Jeff Munkin, uh, won the Coach of the Year Award, uh, which is in this case the George Munger Coach of the Year Award. Um, well deserved. Munkin led the Army Black Knights to an 11 and 2 record. That is an academy yeah, record that's pretty, for them. That's pretty impressive. That's mind blowing to me. Um, not to mention they absolutely demolished Houston um, in the armed forces, the armed forces bowl, seventy to fourteen. So with that, I say, uh, you know, congratulations, Jeff. You know, if, if you're a, a graduate or you know if you serve in the army, certainly this makes you proud as can be. Um, and as always, go army, beat navy. So, so I have. Uh... Not really shout-outs, but just two two things to bring to the table. So, one, Dana Holgerson left West Virginia. Now, it sounds like there was a disconnect between him and the administration. He had been there for about eight years, so it sounded like it was kind of time for a change. But Dana Holgerson is a guy who had, I'd say, a decent amount of success at West Virginia. Sure. Okay, that's not an easy place to recruit in the big 12 no okay it's geographically way off the mark of where everybody else is located you need a high-powered offense they had that guy in will Greer. 
But he goes to Houston. Now, I know why he went there, because his checkbook is now fat. (laughs) But he's essentially left a Power 5 school to try to build the next UCF. So what's the upside for him here? Yeah, I I don't know. You know, he had a really good thing going in West Virginia. Um, you know, this this isn't much of a homecoming for him. I know it's kind of being spun that way, but he was offensive coordinator for Houston for, I think, a year or two. I know he was there when he someone was, was there, um, and I think Case Keenum was his quarterback for at least one of those years. Um, so, you know, they, they were successful with him, but I, you know, how attached to a place can you be if you've only spent a couple of years there? Um, something with, with he and the administration at WVU must have not been hitting the marks correctly. And I, I know there was some unhappiness with his recruiting. Um, you know, he landed some big JUCO guys, but really his – the bread and butter high school recruiting was not, um, I guess, what maybe they were hoping it would be. And as you mentioned, that's um, that's a strange situation to recruit. You're trying to recruit an area that is not really keen on the Big uh, 12, and you're trying to also get them jazzed up to go fly across the country every Saturday to go play teams that aren't in their region. Um, you know, it's tough. It's tough. But – I don't know. I mean, I've, I've got no answers. Do I think Houston is a place where you can win big? Absolutely. Uh, there's money there. There's talent there. There's everything you need to succeed, and there's everything you need to become the next UCF. Do I understand why a coach would take a move from West Virginia and, and what it is now uh, to a place like Houston where the expectations are certainly much higher than they should be? Uh, no, I, I don't understand that one. So, I, like you said, I guess money talks in this situation. Yeah, we'll see how it works out. I just think until the playoff is expanded, you basically have to go undefeated at Houston to have a shot at a playoff. And you better hope that your non-conference is loaded with power fives. And not like Vanderbilt. No. Okay? I'm talking actual power five threats. Yeah. You know, teams that are respected at, at those levels. Nothing against Vandy, but, you know, just because uh, I'm playing a bottom feeder in the SEC – you, you don't get any credit in my book. No. The the other thing I wanted to hit on, and I'll just pose this question to you, is Cliff Kingsbury becoming the new Lane Kiffin? Absolutely. That is so weird that you say that. Um, that is so weird. Yes, he's absolutely becoming the next Lane Kiffin. Um, it's like, you know, towards the end of the Star Wars movie when Luke's kind of trending towards the dark side a little bit, you can kind of see him taking on the traits of the dark side and becoming one with the dark side. That's kind of how this whole situation is playing out. You can see kind of the same trajectory that Lane went on and um, in what's going on with Kingsbury. And also, you know, Lane is highly thought of, but, you know, Cliff is now too. Cliff is an offensive genius and, you know, he's looking at NFL jobs and all this, you know, all, all this stuff that he's doing right now. And it's just, man, you it's identical to what was going on with Lane at the same time. It's crazy. Good question. Yeah. Um, but and he's not hes not just looking at NFL jobs. Yeah, they actively I have seeking no, him. I have no issue with him getting the offensive coordinator job at USC. No. I think that makes total sense. Sure. But he, he failed at Texas Tech. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I like Cliff Kingsbury. 
I think he is a great offensive mind. But I think NFL, the NFL right now is so thirsty for those young yeah. coaches that run these dynamic offenses. And people are saying, well, hey, you know what? Cliff had Patrick Mahomes at Texas Tech. He had Baker Mayfield his freshman year. Although I'm pretty sure Baker Mayfield and Cliff Kingsbury don't get along. Uh, Cliff Kingsbury had Johnny Menzel at Texas A&M. So, I mean, he's had some of the most dynamic talent that we've seen on the college football level and now in the NFL with probably the best quarterback in the NFL this year, Patrick yeah. Mahomes. But, uh, I yeah, I think we're getting a little ahead of our skis here. He had the program at Texas Tech. That's, Texas Tech is a tough place to win. But how you go from getting fired at Texas Tech <laughs> with – pretty much limited to below average success to being a head coach in the NFL. Yeah. I, oh, man. Quite a leap. Quite a leap. Yeah, head coaching positions and multiple head coaching vacancies, seeking interviews and, and looking, you know, hard at Kingsbury. is just, it's weird. It's weird to see, you know, and, and then you go back and you see where we are from, you know, the NFL standpoint and, um, you know, you can thank Sean McVay for this. Everybody's trying to land the Sean McVay of 2019. Um, and yeah, we'll see. I mean, hey, that, that's definitely that what he is right now. Pedigree. Yeah, exactly. He did. But this, it's just, you know, he's another young guy, another offensive mind. Um, he's got, as you mentioned, the track record to prove it from the quarterback standpoint. It's just, to me, a complete disconnect from logic to even quantify or, or realize and understand and grasp how someone fails at a mid-tier Big 12 program and now they're getting head coaching jobs. I, I got no idea how that works. So if I had to guess, if I had to put money on it, I'd say Kingsbury will be a head coach in the NFL next year with the Arizona Cardinals. Know with Rosen there, I mean they got to be thinking, hey, we got the young quarterback. Let's let old Cliffy come in and mold him into a superstar. You know, I mean, look, that's not a bad shout, Justin. Um, they need something. They need some kind of spark in Arizona. They have the first pick in the draft. Um, you know, lucky for them, they got their quarterback last year. But yeah, I don't know. It's something to watch. Um, just something I've I've noticed. He's not the personality of Lane Kiffin, it doesn't appear, thank God. No. But um few are. Yeah. So that is our show. Uh thanks for listening. We are Chowder and Grits. Go to chowderandgrits.com. Follow us on Facebook at Chowder Grits. We're up to ninety nine likes on Facebook. Boom. I want you to be the one hundredth. That's Just it. Hit that like button. That's all you need to do. Follow us on Twitter. Chowder and Grits. And then obviously like, subscribe, share our podcast, uh, get the word out. We're doing uh, twice a week for now. Uh, we'll see how the off season goes, and then um, probably cut it back to once a week at parts of the off season, and then ramp it back up uh, to twice a week starting next ACC football season. So uh, we are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Store, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio, and you can. Find all of those links at chowderandgrits.com. So check us out. Tim, as always, this was fun. I'll talk with you on Sunday. National Championship Preview. Get excited. Yeah, National Championship Preview. We got 
Um, pro football playoffs coming up this weekend. It's setting up to be an okay weekend. I'm looking forward to it. Yep, it'll be good, even though it's Sands, Green Bay Packers. But yeah, my I Carolina Panthers feel your pain. And that's all for us this week. Closing it with the lane train, leaving the station, and we will catch you guys in a couple days.